You are listening to the Enormocast. Here at the Enormocast, we truly believe in the all audio podcasting format where you can listen while you drive, work, wash your cat, or even prancer size. We're going to really cut the noose and let it loose with the prancer size gallop. But climbing nerds do not live on words alone, which is why Black Diamond invites you to tune into BDTV, a video series that delves beyond the numbers into the personalities and motivations behind our beloved sport. The latest episode, Sharing the Line, features Normacast favorite Babsy Zangirl on one of the biggest, hardest, scariest routes in Europe. So if you like a little bit of story with your climbing porn... Hello, my dispatcher says there's something wrong with Dinah Carver. Check out... BDTV on YouTube, Vimeo, BlackDiamondEquipment.com, or whatever time vortex you go to to get your video entertainment. That's BDTV featuring the characters behind the lines. So let's say you've taken the advice you've heard on the Enormacast and played it ice climbing cool with that special climbing friend, going on trip after trip like your family even though you've had the hots for him or her since they burned you off your proj and flips in a ratty pair of Yojimbos from the Lost and Found. Well, if the perfect belay isn't conveying your longing, perhaps the climbing-inspired jewelry and accessories of Peter Gilroy will help you put the punctuation on that date that's not a date, might be a date, climbing date. At PeterWGilroy.com, you'll find jewelry, money clips, belt buckles, hats, and more, all inspired by the rock in the mountains on which your love has flourished. So please, before you resort to the lean-in or the forgotten sleeping bag or the embarrassing confessional after a 12-pack around the campfire, try a classier approach with a spectacular gift from PeterWGilroy.com. And if you crash and burn, know that Peter and Enormacast still appreciate your support, even if your partner does short rope you to the curb. And remember, enter Enormo at checkout for a discount. But keep that part to yourself. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. We really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Calouse. It is about 10.30, mountain daylight savings time here in the United States of America, Colorado, April 27th. This is episode 103 of the Enormacast, a conversation with father, climber, husband, Iraq war vet, 
and a bunch of other things. Stacy Bear. And I really don't have much, if any, business to take care of this time around. Other than uh, taking a moment to apologize for the late posting of this episode, I did manage to get a second episode out in April. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm keeping with that. Um, I'm trying to straighten out this schedule in the coming months, but uh, we'll just see how this whole baby thing affects this whole Enorma thing. Um, anyway, sorry about that. But, you know, those deadlines are just something I made up anyway. So I can unmake them up. As simple as that. Anyway, had a great uh, five-point here in Carbondale this weekend. Uh, did a lot with that. Played some music. Had a live Enormacast. Interviewed Mike Lebecki, which that'll be coming up. And also uh, emceed an event. And all of those things, along with staying up late for the kiddo, has put me under the weather. So... Without further ado, let's get to uh, Stacy's interview. Who is Stacy Bear? Well, he is an interesting cat I met a couple years ago. Uh, one of these unlikely climbers. Big guy, by his own admission, not the most prolific or proficient climber, but loves it. It's part of his life. It, uh, in a lot of ways, saved his life. And we'll get all into that here in this podcast. So prepare to laugh. Maybe cry. Maybe poop your pants. No, that's somebody else we know. Isn't it a normal baby? Don't look at me with that smug, I have a full diaper face. I'll get to it in a second. I gotta go, folks. Enjoy this one with Stacy Bear. All you need is love and climbing. Over the years, friends and family have said to me, You know, Chris, there's more to life than climbing. Well, needless to say, I don't talk to those people anymore. I miss you, Mom. But it appears Sportiva believes this, too. Besides making the best climbing shoes out there, they make stuff for the long approach to nowhere, known as trail running and hiking. Do you like to run or walk aimlessly? Then check out the Superlight Helios 2 Mountain Runner or the Trango TRKGTX. Apparently, one acronym was not enough for these mighty boots. And frankly, though they're sold as trail boots... It looked technical enough that Bonatti himself would have given his last cannoli for a pair back in the day. So check out all the other stuff Sportiva has besides fantastic climbing shoes at Sportiva.com or your nearest high-end outdoor retailer. It turns out they're even into skiing, if you can believe that. Um, I also I also had a chance like three years ago, um, I was walking through OR and... Um, was one of those moments like like you never really actually know what you're doing at or right like you're just kind of wandering around and as like a nonprofit, you're hoping somebody's just going to write you a check so i'm like wandering around and like the the hallway is open and it's like empty and all of a sudden i'm heading one direction and turning the corner is reinhold mesner and this so trip, this time no like three years ago oh, okay four years ago. i didn't see him there That's and just, um he didn't even text me anyway yeah exactly <laughs> So we had seen him the night before and we were, we were talking about his hair and how wonderful his hair was. And, uh, but still, right. Like some relatively new to climbing just, like, brushed it as he went by. So no, no, no. <laughs> so I, so like we, we come at the intersection and we stop. Like he, he sees that I'm expectant. And so he knows he's Reinhold and he's like, here's one of my young fans. And he's so, you know, and I'm like huge. Right. So I don't know if he thought I was going to mug him or whatever. And I was like, Reinhold Mesner, it is, it's amazing to meet you. And he's like, thank you. 
And I'm like, you have amazing hair. <laughs> so like my moment with greatness, right? And so Reinhold, so I tell Reinhold he has amazing hair and like Timmy O'Neill shows up like just as this is happening. Yeah. And right, like Timmy is the most, one of the most far out people I know. Mm-hmm. And Timmy looks at me and he's like, did you just, he totally ignores Reinhold. And he's like, did you just compliment Reinhold Mesner on his hair? And Reinhold's like. I'm not, I don't want to do his accent. I'm going to do his accent injustice, but he's like, yeah, you know, um, uh, thank you for noticing. Like I spend a lot of time on my hair because when I'm in the mountains, like be in the mountains, you know, 100% in the mountains, but outside of the mountains, like, I think it's very important to take care of yourself. And I, I do a lot with my hair. And so thank you very much for noticing. And like, and it's Reinhold Mesner, right? So he's not, he's not taking the piss. It's like actually Reinhold Mesner. He's like a serious gentleman. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's like Reinhold Mesner, like actually being like, no, thank you for complimenting my hair. And, um, he's like, well, thank you. Have a, have a nice day. (laughs) And I was like, and I didn't even have the wherewithal to take a picture or anything, but Timmy O'Neill is just staring at me and he's like, (laughs) what just happened? And I was like, Reinhold Mesner, man, he's got great hair. (laughs) So that was, that's been like my brush with greatness. That's awesome. That's an awesome story. That's so insightful because I don't, you know, like, you know, he's this crazy enigma guy, like this fortress, like he literally lives in a castle, you know, so, and he's always so serious. That's an awesome insight into the man. Right. And I just have this image. Like I still have this image sometimes. Like you're probably what, like a solid two feet taller than the dude. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so now I have this image, like from time to time, like whenever I'm in like the shampoo aisle, which is not for me, but for my wife, like I'll always look over and I'll be like, I wonder, I wonder if this is a conditioner Reinhold uses. Oh man, that's a that's a, a, a sponsorship contract that he probably never really, never really sought out, but for right. sure he, could have had it. He, he could have been <laughs> just like you know, like Everest Base Camp, like in the 1970s, like him emerging from a tent. Although you know, that reminds me, have you ever seen the Monty Python, the hairdresser's ascent of Everest? I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's like perfect i've never put that together they must i mean they must have been like playing off of him and those guys that were up there because yeah it's like a total i mean he could have been in that commercial for right sure. yeah. yeah without a doubt so me me and reinhold talking about hair come to think of it there aren't a lot of photos with reinhold wearing a helmet no no <laughs> that's by design right yeah for sure all yeah. right and just keep in mind in case you're listening mr uh messner uh what, what's the german for mr Herr Mesner? Yeah, Herr Mesner. Wie geht's dir? Yeah, yeah. Don't, we're, with all due respect, sir. With all due respect. With all due respect. And uh, come on the show. And yeah. I'm, I'm here for you. I'm waiting. We'll call the episode Lion's Mane. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had a, like a five-minute conversation this morning about um, how one of the best ways to ingratiate yourself with any culture is to figure out the fermented cabbage dish that that culture likes. Cause there's all, there's always one. Yeah. And then pretend you like it. I love sauerkraut. Okay. And so like, yeah, I'm always, yeah, but what about kimchi? Oh, I love kimchi. Really? Yeah. Oh. So I was like, where's your fermented cabbage maker? Yeah. Take me to your fermented cabbage maker. <laughs> They're just like, all right, this guy's in, this guy's in. If yeah. he's going to eat that shit, he's, he's in. He's totally in. <laughs> anyway. So tell me about this trip that you, uh, Went on to Angola. Just yeah. what? Last year? Uh, last September. Okay. So like just a few months ago. Oh. Alex Honnold. Just this year. Okay. Yeah. So last so, year, technically. Well, but technically just a few last year. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. But within the calendar, within 12 months. Yeah. So Alex Honnold and I went climbing in Angola, which is kind of the most ridiculous sentence I've ever said. So I was in the army from 2000 to 2004. I was in the army twice. And so I was in the army from 2000 to 2004. 
and I couldn't deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan. Like I couldn't find my way down there for whatever reason. And, uh, the army and their wisdom sent me down to Bosnia, which was really fantastic in 2003 and four. And I finished that term up and I really wanted to stay in Bosnia or stay in the army. But again, the army and I had two very different ideas of what I was going to do with my career. So I left. And when I was in Bosnia, I had seen all these people doing landmine clearance stuff. And I was like, well, that seems like a really cool thing to do. And it's really a pretty objective good, right? There's really no subjectivity as to whether or not taking landmines out of the ground is good or bad. And the army has a lot of subjectivity. So I wanted to do something that was good in the mm -hmm. world. And, and so, so just real quick, I mean, this is a thing that I think some people are like, what are you talking about? But yeah, I mean, these countries that have had civil wars or wars or whatever, everybody leaves and there's just yeah. old landmines and farmers wandering onto them, kids wandering onto yeah. them, whole areas people can't go. Totally. And yeah. it just shuts down entire right. communities, right? right? They can't access water. They can't access school. They can't access goods. They can't access agriculture. And there's all this debris of war that's just left over. And so I was like, well, I want to go do that. And um, I, I wasn't trained in explosive ordnance disposal or EOD. And so I Googled uh, landmine clearance organizations and three or four of them showed up and I sent emails to them and I said, hey, you know, I'm getting out of the army. I'm a captain in the United States Army. I I'm pretty trainable. Could I come work for you? And I got an interview from the Halo Trust, which is based out of Dumfries, Scotland, which is literally in the middle of nowhere, Scotland. And they hired me and they sent me down to Angola and I learned how to do explosive ordnance disposal or EOD work there. And I was there for about nine months. I actually got medically evacuated because I got really, really sick with um, an unknown liver disease. That was the kind of general diagnostic. And the, and the first time that I had to go to a hospital, it was in this town called Chinjenj in really, really rural Angola. And they cleared out a maternity ward for me. And like all the pregnant women who are about ready to give birth were like apologizing that they were on the table. And I'm like throwing up everywhere and hallucinating. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like I'm trying to like, as I'm vomiting, I'm trying to help Angolan women like back onto the maternity uh -huh. table and trying to explain to the doctor that just because I'm white, like I, I don't yeah, need the table. Right, right. Like, like these people are about to bring children into the world. Sure. Like I'll, I'll make it. Um, and so nine months later, I was like 198 pounds, which later Alex Honhold would refer to as the perfect climbing weight for me. I'm six, seven. Uh, what's your, what's your fighting weight? Um, uh, my fighting weight. So when I left Iraq, I was 298 pounds. Okay. At six foot seven. That's a, that's a, that's a lot of yeah. pounds and, and to right go now rock I'm like, climbing with. <laughs> right. Right now I'm like 235. Um, or as Alex would say, just fat. Um, and, uh, in a loving way, Alex would say that. So, um, I left the army in 2004 and I moved down to Angola to do explosive ordnance disposal because there was all this leftover ordnance and things that were screwing up people's farms and, and people weren't able to kind of move forward with their lives at the end of the Angolan civil war, which lasted more or less from 1975 to 2003. So years later, I, you know, after Angola, I went to, um, Abkhazia in the Northwest corner of Georgia. I've been to Iraq. I've, I've come home from that war. Um, I've gone through uh, cocaine addiction and I've sobered up off alcohol and I'm trying to figure out where I want to go with my life and what do I want to do. And one of the things I really wanted to do was to go back to uh, all the places I had been at war, cleaned up after war uh, to ski or climb with this idea that I wanted to highlight the adventure and kind of the, the universality of the human experience to people back in the States and around the world who might think of these places as just kind of war torn and like, mm -hmm. well, what's, mm -hmm. what's good there. And uh, there's a lot of good right. And throughout the world. And, um, I'd remembered in Angola, these really beautiful rocks, 
and these huge granite monoliths and sandstone cliffs and stuff. And, um, but I wasn't a climber, so I didn't really know if it was good or not. And then years later I become a climber living in Boulder, Colorado in around 2009, 2010, I started climbing. And, uh, this last January, about a year ago, I meet Alex Honnold at this event and, um, we're talking and he's like, well, what are your projects and what are you up to? And I was like, oh, you know, I have this dream of going back kind of like adventure, not war, make adventure, not war. And I really want to go back and ski or climb. And he's like, well, well, tell me about it. And I was like, yeah, Angola is on the list. And he's like, oh, so this dude's been Facebooking me for a couple of years about trying to get me to come to Angola. This crazy Belgian guy is like, I want to go. And I was like, cool. When, when, when do you want to go? And he's like, well, maybe later this year. And, um, well, so, that's his thing. It's like, it's like the, the life experience. Like right. if he, if it seems like something that like will sort of change his outlook, he's like, he seems like he's totally in. That's he's, his like phrase, life experience. I'm right. looking for another life experience. Right. So, so yeah. he's, he's so you, totally you in. Press the life experience button. I hit the life experience <laughs> button and, um, yeah. So I, so I hit the life experience button for Alex, I guess. And, um, a couple months later we have vice sports is supporting the trip with the North face. Okay. And I'm, I'm going climbing with Alex and keep in mind, like I'm a, I'm a very mediocre climber, right? Like I, I climb as much as I possibly can. And that amounts to, if I'm lucky, like once or maybe twice a week with some gym sessions in there. And, uh, and Alex is Alex Honnold, right? Sure. And, and Alex is quick to tell you that he's not the best climber in the world. Um, but when you're like a five, nine climber, like Alex, you know, is in a, couple of different leagues yeah and he might be lying about that anyway so <laughs> right exactly um i've heard chris galoose was the best climber in the world for a long time there for a while for a yeah. while yeah um so so we end up in angola right so so we, sh- we show up in angola and um the we, we meet each other at jfk and alex has everything that he needs for this trip like in a bag right and um it's uh a pair of pants two t-shirts and a hooded sweatshirt. Oh yeah. And that uh, for like 16 days in Angola. <laughs> so if you watch the film on vice sports, Alex talks about cleaning out his underwear with napkins. And, <laughs> and the thing is, is that he had to do that cause he didn't have any other underwear and there, there really wasn't a place ever to like, you pick know, up like some undies, swing by Walgreens <laughs> right on the corner of, Oh yeah. Just go past that old, um, landmine field there. So anyway, so we get to Angola and, uh, we it's it's taken us like five days to to or four or five days to actually get to the place where we can have our first climb, and we get there and there are these huge like everybody knows Alex is famous but they don't really know why or how right because mm-hmm. rock climbing for the I mean rock climbing is a pretty esoteric thing to begin with, but when you go to a place that's you know about twelve years removed from a civil war, thinking about taking the time to go climbing when most people are just trying to survive. Sure. Yeah. You you realize how privileged we are, right. Right. To be able to go rock climbing and to spend our time literally going up the hardest possible path we can find. Like Mm -hmm. that's the goal. Right. And risking our lives. Right. When they're just like trying to stay alive. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, but they were all really into it. Like they all wanted to come kind of hang out and be part of the scene and everything. Um, the most disappointing thing though, we have this. So, so all along this whole trip, we have like, there's like two TV stations and three radio stations that are following us. And when we get to this one, the first spot in the Lapupa Lodge, there's a helicopter from the Angolan air forces there for rescue. Like, like, like Alex is going to need rescuing. And so we, um, so we, we head off and we split up into two teams, Mari Birdwell and I go, um, to try one route and 
Alex and Ted Hesser go try another out. And Alex is like, oh, I think it's only going to be six pitches. And I'm looking at him and, you know, I'm looking at the mountain. I'm like, there's no way that's six pitches, but you're Alex, right? So I'm just going to listen to you. And the, the other thing about Alex too, is if, if you ever get to climb with him, I mean, he's a great guy, but Alex will be like, oh, that's like a five, nine, which actually means it's a 10 D for the rest of us. Right. right. So he's like, or he'll give it a plus. He's like, well, that's like a five, nine plus. Yeah. The pluses historically are a danger sign. Right. Yeah. Are like red lights going off flashing. Right. Like one route that we he put up there, which was like required two different inversions. He was like 12A tops. Really? Yeah. It's like it's two inversions and like a weird knee bar. And then you have to grunt like Chrissy Everett to get to the top. So uh, Chrissy Everett was a tennis player, for those of you that don't know. Um, so <laughs> she invented the tennis grunt. She, she did. Yeah. And, and Alex has perfected it on that climb. So we, we go off and, and we're like... So Mario's an incredible climber as well. Great dude. And, um, the other funny thing is, is that everybody like throughout the trip, you realize all white people look the same and everybody, everybody kept thinking that I was Alex cause, <laughs> which is awesome because I'm six foot seven and I weigh like two forty. I'm bald. I have like a blonde beard and Alex is like, you know, like a foot shorter weighs like 140 pounds has floppy brown hair. Those big dark doe eyes. Those, those big dark doe eyes. He also, so he called me ogre throughout the entire trip. Um, cause I, I guess I look like Shrek. And so I was like, all right, oh, all right. Call me ogre donkey. And so, so the thing is, if you're listening, try and find a picture of me, which is on the normal cast site. I'm sure at this point, take a look at me and then take a look at Alex and then take a look at the picture of Shrek and donkey. And, right. and there is a shocking similarity there. Right. Um, I'll, I'll for sure post that. I'll probably get sued, but I'll post yeah. a picture of the Shrek and the donkey. And it, yeah. And in many ways, just like in the movie, the donkey is a lot smarter than Shrek. So, um, so we, we, we head off climbing and, and we get like two and a half pitches into this thing. And then there's like this chimney over this chalk stone and it's getting dark. Cause it's six o'clock at night in Angola. Like the sun goes out and it's, it's black. There's no light from anything. And the stars don't really shine. And, down in Angola and uh, there's all sorts of smoke in the air because we were there kind of at the end of um, a burning cycle for the, for the local agriculture. And so Mario and I are like, well, we're bailing. We're, we're going to leave a nut and we're going to get out of here mm -hmm. and do the safe thing. And, and we're both laughing. We're like, poor Ted. Like Alex doesn't bail. Oh, right. <laughs> so we go down and we're like, well, Alex said it was six pitches and we're like laughing about this. And so and uh, then how far up did you guys get? Uh, we got like, I don't know, maybe four pitches. But what was ha I mean, was this like the rock solid? Are you guys vegetating in this? It's you know? super vegetated yeah, at right, this like, part. And we're yeah. like, you know, it's like, you know, trying to figure out like, is this not going to hold in the soil right, around right. this plant okay. here? And yeah. So we have like two solid pitches of like vegetation. And then, um, you know, there's one really pretty good pitch and then this like super, super sketchy traverse. Okay. Uh, and then we get up there and then Mari went another kind of half pitch up and, and by pitches, I mean like 60 meters. Yeah. Right? These aren't 30 meter pitches. Right. And these so are, you're, this is the first ascent. Yeah. Yeah. The, you're just wandering up the side of this thing yeah. as best you can. Okay, cool. Right. There's at one point where Mari's like, so Stacy, I'm going to come up over this chalk stone and it's a good chance it falls and you die. <laughs> And I'm like, cool, man, on the way. Like, like, we got this. Everything's going to be fine. Um, the power of positive thinking. Yeah, the power of positive thinking. So so we go up and and, and we, we're like, we're going to bail. And so we walk through. And um, the, the whole thing, too, is right. So, like, we go up this way. And, and literally, the owner of this lodge, this guy owns this lodge. And I don't, Mount Lapupa, where we're climbing, which is now actually called Mount Lapupa Alex. 
um, <laughs> is uh, is like behind it, and they send bulldozers after us to like create a pathway for us. Ah, sure, that's nice, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, why, why, why not? Why wouldn't you? So we come down and 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 it, we're like at this five star safari lodge, and so there's like internet there, and there's this really nice food and everything, and we're eating, and it's like, and and now it's like ten o'clock at night, and we haven't heard from Alex or Ted, we haven't mm-hmm. seen them, and Mari and I are like, whatever, they're fine. And everybody else, the Angolans are starting to get really nervous. Yeah. Right? You don't Is want that, the, 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 you know, the world's greatest rock climber to die on your watch. No, you don't. And there's, there's like, there's a couple moments throughout. <laughs> and the, the other guy. Right. And right. The, Ted too, <laughs> which is a great movie. And, um, so the, the, like, so there's a couple moments throughout the trip where I'm like, you know, I'm going to be the guy who's forever known as like, oh yeah. You remember when, uh, you remember Alex Honnold? Yeah. He was such a great climber such an inspiration for everybody. Yeah. Stacy Bear killed him. Yeah. Right. You know, right. Like. <laughs> Went on this trip to Angola and Stacy killed him. Um, and so I have those moments a little bit, but I'm like, whatever, you know, he's fine. Um, nobody's going to blame me if he goes. So like 10 o'clock, Mari and I are tired and they're like, should we send the helicopters up to drop blankets on them? I'm like, no, don't do that. And, and Mari and I like look at each other one moment and realize like, we must sound like complete dicks to right. Angola. Just Cause like- we're like, don't worry about it. Like he's fine. <laughs> so Just- he, Shake up another martini. Right. Yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> Angola. So, do you, um, how, what's the weather like? It's, I mean, it's, it's like nice. Colder. It, yeah. It's like 50 degrees. Right, right? right. I mean, so I'm sure it's chilly up there. You've yeah. gone all day. You've been sweating and everything. And so like we go, we go to bed. We're like, whatever. <laughs> see you guys later. And they're, they're like driving around, uh, you know, trying to look for headlamps and they're yelling <laughs> Alex's name. And, um, they finally come down at like three o'clock and they basically got into this narrow chimney system that was like covered in bat shit mm. and they, and there's like no pro anywhere. And they're doing like these big 70 meter unprotected pitches and like five, nine, like six pitches of five, nine bat shit chimney. So that was our first climbing angle. Nice. Yeah. And I mean, the rest of it, there was some really amazing climbing actually. And, um, there's some areas that are just so beautiful and there's an area, um, Pedros Negras, which means black rocks. And that was where we spent the last couple of days of the trip. And it, it's like maple, Right mm-hmm. down, you know, you know, down in Utah here, um, and but bigger and so beautiful, and so there, there's there's a tremendous amount of potential for just some really really incredible rock climbing and the number of first ascents and really cool stuff and futuristic projects and um, you know it was really incredible just to be able to climb with those guys at that level and the amount of stoke and and see that kind of excitement and enjoyment around the mountains and around climbing and the movement of it. And that, that really made the trip and there's a, there's huge potential in Angola. And I think the struggle is, is that we, we keep, you know, I said that when I was there in 2004 and five and, um, there's still huge potential. And I really want that potential to start being realized because it could be, I mean, the, the, the potential for amazing surf is there, the potential for really beautiful hikes and treks and through treks. Mm And, um, you know, but I mean, some of the challenges, right? Like, you go up climbing a little cottonwood and your objective danger is a group of boy scouts learning to climb. Right. Right. You go to Angola and you're like, no, you shouldn't climb over there because there might be landmines. Right. There's probably landmines. What is the political situation? Um, the political situation, uh, you know, there's been one leader since like 1979. Right. Dos Santos. I think Angola has one of the highest GDPs in the world. But there's there's pretty crushing income inequality, right? Because that's yeah, I've I've heard too. Like, um, do they have they have oil, right? Yeah, they, yeah. they have a, a, a lot of offshore oil, okay. and a lot of diamonds, right? Um, and things are really expensive. The port facilities are mm-hmm. pretty old and right. haven't been updated, so it takes forever for things to get into port for import export. Um, 
and you know the, the the thing is about angle is that there there are a lot of challenges mm-hmm. especially around economy and um access to clean water and access to education and but universally the people are the people that we met in angola were pretty incredible right they're really happy to meet us they're really joyful um and a lot of really great people in angola and you hope that the government can find a way um to to get those to to, to raise the level of access for education and healthcare and you know i mean it's you're, you're out in the back end of nowhere and you're climbing with these guys and they're down there cheering you on and trying to figure out what's going on and what are you doing? And they all want to try. And you look at some of these folks and you're like, gosh, you know, what are we missing out on as a society by making sure that this guy, you know, this guy's what, what could this guy or gal do if they were educated? Right. Is the cure to cancer here is the next great sustainable water program Mm -hmm. sitting right here. And, um, you know, then they go back and continue to slash and burn their fields. Right. Yeah. So is there actually any sort of established climbing there? Like have the, generally it seems like some intrepid Frenchman turned up like in 1972 and put up a route or, or like the British showed up and right. banged yeah. something out up that down there. Um, I think it, I, yeah. So there's one Portuguese climber. Okay. And there's one Angolan climber. Okay. And there's two living there. there. Uh, the Portuguese guy left. Oh, okay. Uh, the Angolan is still there. Uh, Pedro Cunha and Rui is the Portuguese guy. And uh, then there's two Americans who are working for oil companies that are really into climbing. And those guys, um, we wouldn't have really been able to do this trip without them. There's right. actually um, a mountain project entry for Angola okay. that they put in. And so we did do a couple of their climbs. We, we pretty much put up all new first ascents and or, or first free ascents. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I got lost on one of the sport routes and, and put a new redirect in quite unintentionally, um, up a lichen cobbly, um, route called the Stegosaurus, the bear redirect. For those of you that want to go and do it, you basically go up past the first bolts and then take the most illogical line that you possibly can sure, find. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you're going to actually want to go through the large tussock of vegetation, which, um, <laughs> I tried to clean out. Um, but yeah, so there are four guys that have climbed before. Um, and you know, I, I Petzl should go do their rock trip there basically. Right. So, I mean, the potential is incredible. Well, those guys must have been stoked that y- y'all turned up and put up some roots for them. Yeah, I think they were super stoked. I mean, it was, you know, it's, it's not like out here, you know, we, we did let them know like, Hey, can we come? And you know, you mm-hmm. have some projects is it okay. If we finish projects is it okay. Um, and they were super stoked that yeah. people were coming and the opportunity for adventuring in Angola is just limitless. Yeah. It's a big place. It's huge. Yeah. It's like, it's like the size of France and Germany put together. Right. Yeah. So now what's the sitch with the, I mean, how much of it is sort of off limits in terms of this landmines and all this sort of stuff? Quite a bit. Yeah. Um, about half the known landmines are out of the country right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great to be with the Halo Trust, which is who I worked with. And, and we, we reconnected with the Halo Trust and my old boss, Gerhard Zank, was there. Um, Valdemar, who had trained me in a lot of landmine clearance, it was great to see him. And um, uh, so it was, it was really awesome to reconnect with a lot of people that had a really important role to play in my life and, and doing some incredible work, humanitarian work. And uh, about half the landmines are out, but there's still you know, several hundreds of thousands of landmines in the ground. And the challenge is, is that the international community is done funding for the most part. I mean, there's still a lot of funding that's coming in, but not near the same levels because Angola has a lot of resources and they have a lot of finance. Sure. 
But they're not probably spending it on that. They're not necessarily spending it on landmines. Right, right. So <clears throat> I want to actually move towards your climbing, uh, kind of you getting into climbing. But I do, I have to ask this question um, about landmine removal. Mm-hmm. Um, how exactly is it done without like, we can't spend like an hour on it. But like, it's when we talk about it, it's like, wow, that's a really good idea. But then. You're just like, well, what does that mean? You know, because then you conjure just some guy like, you know, slowly walking, listening. But yeah, it's done. I mean, very, you're doing machines. Are you? What, it's, what? it's done very carefully. Oh yeah, <laughs> clearly. That's that's the quick answer. <laughs> it's, it's actually really boring work by design. Um, yeah, are you like? Well, just so, go ahead, so there's, real quick. There's there's two ways to do it, right? One way is basically you have a metal detector and you have a meter in a meter line in front of you, and then you move that metal detector three times over a certain space. Mm-hmm. And then if you hear a beep, you go back 10 centimeters, you dig down 10 centimeters, and then you slowly brush the dirt away in front of you through 10 centimeters until you see the landmine or a piece of metal. And then when you see the landmine, you raise your hand. <laughs> and You're fucking kidding. No, you, you raise your hand, and then somebody comes, and they say, all right. And then you put a little flag there, and then you back out of, the, you back out of it. And you turn and then you go over and then you start in the next meter over. And then at a predetermined point in the day, um, somebody comes and you set explosives next to the landmine. Or if it's possible, you might dig onto the landmine and let it drop into your hand. And then you'll remove it for uh, explosion later. So that's the quickest way. And there's also um, sometimes the land is way too hard uh, or full of metal bits or things that make the mine detector go off. And then what you do is you dig a 10 centimeter by one meter hole and you just scrape the dirt away and you move slowly forward, scraping the dirt away. And the tools are basically a modified trowel is your number one tool Uh and a little stick that's 10 centimeters long. Okay. Um, one of the, so when when I lived there, so with a mine detector, you like carve your own stick or do they provide you you the stick? They provide, okay, cool. They provide sticks for you, (laughs) little red sticks. Uh, and you're wearing like a quarter inch, um, face mask right that's like clear fiberglass Mm -hmm. and then uh just a small like three quarters of an inch or even less um kevlar vest that has a little crotch pad and the idea is is that the more comfortable you are the more likely you are to stay focused um so and a lot of what my job right was was quality control and quality assurance in angola Mm -hmm. so you go to different minefields and you make sure that there's a hierarchy right you know there's like a section leader and then a, a minefield leader and so you go out and you test and and then you you use their um, you use their tool right their mine clearance tool to make sure and, and check to see if they missed anything which is a little scary at times sure and so um, it's all battery powered right okay. and so when the battery is low the the um, the mine detector starts beeping and then it's you know to change the battery. So Angola hasn't had like a formal education system for the most part from 1975 to 2003. So I'm there in 2004. So I walk up to this guy to check his mine clearance and I see where the last person did quality control and quality assurance from. And I probably walk 30 meters above that. And this guy's way out in front of everybody else. And I'm like, man, he's moving quick. That's awesome. So we get out there and, Maybe. I, and I, and I do the test and I've got like my boss and like my desk officer from Scotland is here. And so I, I'm like really proud of this minefield. Everybody's so great. And I pick up the, I pick up, <laughs> I pick up the detector and there's no noise, right. As I'm testing it. Mm-hmm. 
And so the guy's like, the guy laughs and he's like, ha, 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 of course there's no noise. And then he hands me the battery. So we have just walked 30 meters into a minefield, into a minefield. And the guy has been doing everything correctly, but the battery was beeping. So he just took it out. Yeah. It's annoying. It's, it's annoying. super annoying. That <laughs> it's, battery. It it's super annoying. Nuts. <laughs> and so now there's four people standing on the standing in this area. Right. And like, we don't know how to get back. And so somebody has to literally like clear the their, zone. The, yeah. So we're just wow, standing, standing there because we're not going to like walk back through. Like, right. Yeah. You know? So that's mine clearance. Um, you do it safely and quietly. That's radical. I'm, I'm really glad I asked you that because I imagine like super high tech, like, you know, some sort of, you know, robot drone thing out there no, driving there's, around. There's, with there's, 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 sometimes we would put this modified bulldozer that had like a huge axle on it and then several rotating metal spinning wheels. And you would basically drive that into a field just, until until there was an explosion. And then you would back it up and then you would like just keep doing that to find the edge of the minefield. Right. Yeah. To which was like a really, perimeter. yeah, the, the drivers would always, uh, yeah. I mean, the driver that is still pretty intense. intense yeah. Job. I would imagine. You're just like, wait, I mean, that sounds insane. Yeah. Actually. You're like, we're just going to, even gonna, if you're not going to get blown up, just waiting for the thing to happen. Yeah. And I mean, they can really rock. I mean, yeah. you know, even, even a landmine can really rock it. And when you're driving, so they also had anti, anti-tank mines and anti-vehicle mines. And when those the, are big, those are big. Yeah, mines. Yeah. And so I, I saw, um, yeah. And, and, you know, people have been moving through this area and along for years. Right. And so they're like, you know, a lot of times we were clearing an area and people wanted to walk through it and they were following footpaths. And, um, so, you know, a couple of times, like there's this lady and we we're saying like, no, 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 don't, don't go there. Don't go there. We think there's a landmine. And then a minute later she's gone, right? Like there's an explosion and she's gone because they had taken an anti-personnel mine and used it as the fuse of an anti-tank mine. Uh-huh. And so when she stepped on it, like, you know, the, the mine is designed to blow up a tank. And so when that comes through with a person, like she's right. gone. Right. And there's like a red mist. And then, and then like, what do you do? You like, just, you, you, we all kind of stop for a few minutes and then we just kept doing what we were doing. Wow. So there are things like that or like you, you drive on the roads and the roads were, were dirt and they would, um, bury three to four landmines and stack these anti-tank mines. And then they would like drill a hole and put a dowel rod on top of it so that the enemy couldn't detect it. Um, but then you would drive across and press the dowel. Oh, rod. So it's like deep, too deep to be too detected. Deep. Yeah. And that blow up cars. So like we drove across the landmine a couple of times and realized that later. And that was always a freaky experience. And the other thing that that would happen is that then in the, when the roads would get wet, um, you know, eventually you drive across one area several times, right. And the road's hard and baked dirt. And then eventually it ruts out. And mm-hmm. so then it would blow up a car. Like then, the ruts would get deep enough to catch the right. mine. Okay. And, so, and they would lay the mines like across the road, you know, six on either side of the road and then the road. So a truck would blow up and then another truck would come through and try and drive around it and it would blow up and then the next truck would blow up. So, I mean, I really love people. I think at the end of the day, people are good and I think people want to do good in the world, but there is a capacity for evil and there's a capacity to, um, really hurt one another that is there. And I think that's, that's driven from a lot of things, right? If you don't give people an economic or an environmental opportunity, um, it's really easy to see why people go to war. Um, you know, in the United States, if, if you're an unemployed dude without a lot of economic opportunity and not too good with the ladies, you can be a rock climber. (laughs) But the rest of the world doesn't have that as an option, even though there's a lot of beautiful rocks out there. And um, so I think there's an opportunity for extremism and and war and and to be a hero, right? And we get to be heroes every day on the rock wall. And that's what's one of the most beautiful things about climbing is like 
my first climb up up the first flat iron was you know what is the first flat iron it's like a five 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 six but i'd never done that before mm-hmm. and it was incredible i mean when i got to the top of that thing i felt like i had just conquered the world i felt like a hero my buddy was so stoked for me my buddy chuck and um and that catches you and you want to keep doing that mm-hmm. and you want to you want to recapture that feeling and you know you can sit around right and talk to people and if they've been on that same route they you can talk and you have this shared experience and um it's it's this really beautiful thing and uh you know if the whole world rock climbed i think we could we could get to world peace um so but but that's not always the case and people don't have those opportunities and that's one of the things though is that you know we want to go back to angola and and hopefully iraq and afghanistan and uh, the former Republic, Soviet Republic of Georgia and Bosnia and, and show people like these really beautiful places and, mm-hmm. and hopefully show the folks that are there, like maybe seems kind of pointless to you right now, but hopefully you get a chance to experience it in the way we do and see the beauty in your country. And- well, that's the thing I was, when you said like these folks kind of knew what Alex did and, and they were sort of like, excited to have you guys there and see what you're doing and cheer for it and everything else. There's this, there's this aspect too. I find that, you know, they, they do have some pride in their country when someone else shows up and is super excited about it. And they're like, yeah, this is awesome. You're right. This is our stuff. You know, I'm going to show you this. I'm going to show you this. And, you know, far from being like, Hey, don't, don't touch it and don't climb on it. They're like, yeah, go. It's, this is, you love our, our, our place. And so yeah. we're excited to have you here and, and show off beautiful, whatever, you know, wherever it happens to be. It seems like people want to share and what you're enthused to be here. Well, gosh, great. Yeah. You know, like, like no, and we, we totally yeah. got that, right? Like, like you're in these, these crazy places um, for you. They're crazy and, and it's really beautiful. And, the people are, you know, they're, they're trying to make a living. They're trying to make it through every day. They want the same things you and I want, right? They, they want to laugh. They want food for their kids. They want a better opportunity for their kids than they had for themselves. And, mm-hmm. um, they want to feel respected and they want to have dignity and they want to be treated with dignity and they want to have a sense of self-determination. And, you know, sometimes you're there and you're like, man, what a beautiful place. Right. And it's, it's always cool. And they kind of look up sometimes and like, yeah, this is a really, this is great. This is so beautiful. Like we're so glad, you know, thanks for coming here. And, 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 and I feel the same way, right? Like somebody comes to my house or, or, you know, my backyard, the little cottonwood, big cottonwood area. Like I want to show them around. I want to show them how awesome this place is mm-hmm. and why I love it so much and why it matters to me so much. And, um, it's the same thing. They're super happy to have us and, and, and excited that we were there. And, you know, you have to be really respectful of, of, of that. And there are places that have sacredness to you know, rocks that have sacredness to them. And, um, I think if you approach it in a way of like, look, I'm not here to conquer the rock. I'm here to experience the rock. I'm here to, um, not to get all spiritual and everything, but I'm here to commune with the rock and I'm here to see that. And, and that sense of climbing there is similar to the sense of climbing here, right? It's just, um, but that's what you want out of a climbing trip, right? It's just an opportunity to go out and hang out with a bunch of buddies and do something a little different and sit around the campfire at night and talk about the day. So can we talk a bit about your path? You just mentioned do uh the first flat iron or was it the third uh i think it actually was the first okay so but you just mentioned the first flat iron and as being one of your first climbs if not your first and uh one of the things that that actually i met you a few years ago at or um mm-hmm. and then i think it was after that because time frame wise but at some point i read a piece you wrote for luke mihal's climbing zine about your path to climbing. Um, so can we talk a bit about that? And sure. Because it's kind of like we started at the most recent rad thing 
Right. Like you're the pinnacle of your climbing career. Totally. That, without yeah, a doubt. Without I'm a with doubt. Alex Honnold. Right. That's, well, this is yeah. the pinnacle of my climbing career, actually. No. Talking to you, Chris. Right. So we're, it's a, it's uphill. I from mean, it's here, just, it's, yeah, the, the <laughs> limitless opportunities. Yeah. So let's talk about that because it wasn't that long ago. No. And, no, uh, no. and, uh, yeah. So tell me about climbing coming into your life. And because the cool thing is, is we started with this story and like, you know, all this stuff, these things you're saying about climbing, it's so clear that it, it's, you know, this huge important force in your life. But then, Come to find out, wait, you're four years into it? Yeah, four yeah. or five years into okay. it. A little bit more now, now that it's 2016. Add yeah. another year to that. But um, yeah, so I got out of Iraq in 2007. And, and you, you mentioned in your sort of uh, kind of running through your career, you were in, in the Army twice? Yeah. Okay, so the first time and then this is the second time. This is the second time. So I did um, uh, Reserve Officer Training Corps at okay. the University of Mississippi, Standfast Mississippians. And um, when you join the Army, you join for eight years. And I got a commission into the Army Intelligence Corps, which oxymoron, right? <laughs> so, and I deployed to, well, I, I was stationed in Germany and the Iraq war, you know, 9-11 happened. We deployed to Afghanistan as a country and then the Iraq war. And I really wanted to deploy, right? Because I joined the Army and I wanted to hang out and work with my friends and my colleagues and my brothers and sisters in arms. And I, I couldn't get to Iraq or Afghanistan. And I feel like I got a consolation deployment to Bosnia, which mm -hmm. was a really incredible place. And, and I really love Bosnia and I love the Bosnian people love that whole region. It's incredibly beautiful, but I was getting combat pay and my parents came to visit for Christmas, right? A little bit different than being stationed in Baghdad or, or Kabul. So in 2004, there was a difference in opinion between the United States army and myself about what my career should look like. And so I left and that's when I got into, um, explosive ordnance disposal work okay. down in Angola. But you sign up for eight years. And so I, when I left active duty, I went to what's called the Individual Ready Reserve, or IRR. And the IRR hadn't been called up since the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And it takes an active, you know, an act of the president to say, I need everybody, basically, all the income free. But just kidding, you're not free. You're going back to war. And it hadn't been used for a really long time. And I was living in Abkhazia at the time. And I actually got the notice that I was going back to war on my Yahoo email account in a country that technically doesn't exist. <laughs> so... um <laughs> Which is a funny story, too, about Abkhazia. There were a group of other countries that technically don't exist, like Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and the Transdenistria Republic. And when I was living in Abkhazia, they all got together, and they were basically like, well, you know what? If the United Nations doesn't recognize us, guess what? We don't recognize you. <laughs> all you countries are not legitimate. The only three legitimate countries in the world are South Ossetia, Abkhazia, and the Transdenistria Republic. <laughs> so there. And they had like a joint military exercise, which was like Ivan handing an AK-47 <laughs> off to another guy named Ivan. Um, the Abkhaz were great as well. I really love living there. But um, So yeah, so I get this email on my Yahoo email account, and then living in Abkhazia, you know, playing in the mountains, hiking and climbing all the time, blowing things up, having the time of my life. And then uh, I actually got my orders to go back to Baghdad. I had been, I was waiting on a visa to go into the South Sudan for the Halo Trust. And uh, I was at the Bujigali Falls in Uganda waiting to, for my visa to go into South Sudan. When I actually got my orders faxed to me, my travel orders to get me back to Fort Bragg were faxed to me at a hotel overlooking the start of the White Nile. And that place is no longer there. It's been dammed up. It's a hydroelectric dam. And so that was my last memory and my last place before I went to war. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up in uh, barracks at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, that until the IR call-up had been 
declared unfit for living. Right. And they just pulled those signs off and moved in a bunch of troops. And I lived in a uh, barracks bay for 90 days with, uh, 26 other men, uh, three of whom would not make it back from Iraq uh-huh. and, uh, and others who would be both physically as well as emotionally scarred. So I come home from Iraq in 2007 and midway through Iraq, uh, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life when I get back. And, uh, I was thinking about going to Mozambique to work with the Halo Trust again. And, uh, friends and family asked me to come home. I've been gone for seven years. I'd spent about four years in war zones. I had had an unidentified liver illness in it, uh, that forced me out of Angola that dropped me from down to 198 pounds, which Alex Honhold, when he looked at those pictures, I thought I looked like I'd just gotten out of a concentration camp. And he told me, you look about the perfect weight for sport climbing there. <laughs> and, uh, Missed opportunity. Totally missed opportunity, right? <laughs> I should have been. I, I should have taken the opportunity for Giardia and whatever bacteria and viruses were inside of me. I was jaundiced, but I was ready to be a sport climber. And I, I know I missed out on that opportunity. You probably had the right attitude, too. I, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, and, and as others have pointed out, when you, when you weigh less, falling doesn't hurt as much, evidently. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that actually makes sense. But I guess from a physics standpoint, right, there's less force generated. So, um, I come home and I didn't, you know, I, and I decided I'd go to graduate school and I knew that I wanted to do something in the outdoors before I went to graduate school. So I went on this big surfing expedition in South Africa, which was pretty funny cause I had never surfed before and I was really bad at it, but I had a great time and, um, surfed and I went to Israel for 10 days and I spent a couple weeks in Europe with friends that I'd met. Did when you I convince like Kelly Slater to go surfing? No, with not, at like your thing? <laughs> not at the time. I, I do know, like, like funnily enough, I know Steve Hawk, uh, Steve Hawk and I, uh, worked together at the Sierra club and Steve is an incredible surfer, right? Okay. Like he was on this first Antarctica surf expedition and we always talk about surfing and then I never go cause I'm, I'm, I'm like a far worse surfer than climber. Um, but I love surfing, love being outdoors. And, and then I went to Philadelphia. I moved to Philly. I, I got a design degree at the university of Pennsylvania. Uh, my classmates were absolutely fantastic. But when I was in uh, South Africa, I did cocaine for, you know, I'd used cocaine before a couple of times. It's a, it's a party drug. When I lived in Frankfurt, I knew a lot of bankers. So, right. Like cocaine's around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I was in South Africa, I started doing cocaine and that, uh, so I kind of lived this double life at the university of Pennsylvania, right? On the one hand, I was a relatively successful, uh, student. I was, I was pretty involved. I tried to be pretty with it. Um, and, but then I was also using a tremendous amount of cocaine and really drinking pretty heavily at the time. And I had always been a pretty heavy drinker. I was a big guy. So when I moved out to Boulder, Colorado, I did that because of a job and I had been making six figures in the army, you know, with deployment pay, everything else like that. And then you move out and you take a nonprofit job in Boulder, Colorado, and you're making less money than like a private first class in the United States army. And you have a cocaine habit to fill and, uh, and it's Boulder and it's a really easy place to just keep drinking and partying. And, um, at the same time, the, the other really good thing that happened in Boulder was the people that I met there. One of whom's my wife, um, and she's been incredible and, uh, we're expecting a kid a couple, a couple weeks after meeting you here. So anytime now, but, um, I was really depressed and I was really suicidal and, uh, I kept calling one of my friends to talk about it and he kind of got tired of talking about it and he wanted me to take some action to get better. And, um, his response was come climb with me. And, uh, you know, I have a size 15 foot, so I didn't know if I could find climbing shoes, mm-hmm. but I did. And he took me out climbing on the first flat iron. And, uh, that was it that changed my life. Um, for the first time in my life, I got so far out of my head 
Um, I wasn't worried about what I had done. I wasn't worried about what I was going to do. I wasn't concerned that the life I was living was whether or not that justified the deaths of my friends. I didn't feel guilt. Uh, and it was incredible. And I thought, well, this is what I want to do for the rest of, you know, if, if this is so good for me, how good can it be for other veterans? And, um, so can I stop you there? Yeah, sure. So this guilt idea, mm-hmm. is this like, uh, in terms of having survived while other people, other people died, is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, in terms well, it's, of it's a few things, for, right? Yeah. Like I made it home and my buddies were still over there. I made it home and guys who had a wife and two kids didn't. Right. Right. Um, I made it home and people who I thought were far smarter and more talented than me came home in body bags. And, uh, a lot of my buddies were still there and I wasn't right. And so that was part of it. Um, part of it was, you know, I had trained from the time I was 17 years old until I left the army the first time at 25 to go to war. That's what you're trained to do in the army. Um, and then I wasn't able to do that in 2004, right when I left and that, that felt bad because all my buddies were there and I didn't get to go. Uh, and then finally I did get to go and it was a war that ultimately I also didn't really understand why I was there. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of engagement from the American people. Um, there's still not a lot of understanding why we were there. Was it weapons of mass destruction? Was it the global war on terrorism? Was it to build democracy? Which, uh, even if it was, we, we did very differently than anything that would have been acceptable here in the United States. Um, there's still continued, obviously fights about it. I think, you know, it's a very complex situation with ISIS, um, I think we certainly helped to create the conditions for ISIS. I don't think all the blame rests on the United States and our involvement in Iraq, but certainly a, a mm-hmm. portion of that blame and a significant portion of that blame. Um, but, you know, in 2007 and then later in 2009, you know, a couple of friends had committed suicide. A couple of friends weren't doing too well. And a couple of friends never made it home. And it's funny, you know, and, and the climate community has suffered a lot recently. And uh, Doug Walker's passing uh, hit me really hard. Doug Walker was, you know, a Seattle philanthropist and was a, a mentor and a close friend of, of myself and, and literally hundreds of other people. And some deaths hit you harder than others. Mm-hmm. And um, like there, you know, Brian Freeman and Shane Mahaffey's deaths and Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Holland's deaths uh, have hit me in a way that nobody else's death has really hit me. Um, but every time somebody dies, I think you start going through the people that you know, and you kind of check off their obituaries again. And, uh, sometimes you find yourself crying for somebody who died years ago as you try to mourn for somebody that you just lost. And I I think one of the challenges with the army at times, and I think one of the challenges in our culture today is that men are oftentimes afraid to get um, emotionally intimate with one another. Mm -hmm. And, uh, if we could just cry and tell each other how we were feeling and hug each other from time to time, I don't think that takes away from any of the strength. And, uh, one of the great things about climbing and being outdoors and skiing, I love to ski as well. I say climbing saved my life and now skiing really sustains it is you just, you're in these really intense moments with people and it's okay to really open up, right? I mean, you go climb with somebody for two hours and you'll know them far better than if you spent, four days with them walking around the OR show, right? right? It's just that intensity of experience and that, and I think that's why climbing really makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, you've had Josh Brandon on the show before. He's a good friend of mine. Um, and there's a lot of other guys out there, a lot of other veterans and a lot of other people who have had really intense life experiences and found healing outdoors. And I think that's because there's this incredible sense of camaraderie. There's, an, there's a sense of mission. There's a sense of purpose. Um, 
And it's a way to make failure okay too, right? Like how many times, like you're not going to be a better climber if you're not willing to fail. Right. And, uh, that's one of the beautiful things about climbing. And, you know, as a soldier, if you fail, your friends can die. Right. As a climber, for the most part, if you fail, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, accidents happen in the mountains. We know that, but it's also what gives us life. It's also what gives us energy. And I think one of the best things about climbing for me has been meeting lots of people, both veterans as well as non-veterans and, and realizing that, um, people are all out there for the same thing, right? Which is to get that stoke and to feel that energy and to feel really alive. And, uh, that's what climbing gave to me. And that's what, you know, it might be fly fishing for somebody else or skiing for somebody else or, um, landscape painting or art. Um, Sean Gobin, who does warrior hike and supports veterans getting on the Appalachian trail and stuff like that. Um, you know, he and I, come to the outdoors from two pretty different places, but the feeling's ultimately the same. I think for me, climbing and mountaineering and ski mountaineering and alpinism, you know, just that intensity of experience, that's what really draws me. And it was like, you know, I read Mark Twight's books to kiss or kill when I was in combat. Um, not really realizing that later on in life I would become a climber, and, right. uh, you know, so, or yeah. And the people that I've gotten to meet through this and the people, you know, realizing what they've been through and the similarity of experiences and how we're all kind of working to overcome trauma. And most people have trauma at some point in their lives and, uh, for better or worse, climbing is what's gotten us, gotten us out of it. And climbing is mm -hmm. the community that, um, you know, I, I turn to the most. Um, and I think has been the community that is, uh, born the brunt of my recovery. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we, I talked to Josh, as you just mentioned, and, you know, thematically, like I, he made me realize a lot of things about, you know, we talk about this tribe. We use that word now in climbing and, uh, in the community and whatnot. And then you guys both use these phrases when you talk about your combat, uh, you know, the guys that you, you, you were in, in the war with the brothers and sisters, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's the phrase, you know, and I hear it elsewhere too. So, and it started to make me realize, cause that's what he was talking about too, is these parallels in that, um, maybe for a lot of you guys the the loss of that tribe when you leave and you come home and you like you said you leave them behind in danger and everything else is maybe part of the the kind of waywardness of like well what where do i belong now like back here or whatever and maybe climbing you know because you really do you're you're you know alex honnold was like oh you're a climber i'll go to angola with you right you know like uh Cool. Yeah, cool. You know, because by by recognizing you as a climber, he, you know, for better or worse, right or wrong, he made some judgments about your character. Right. You know, the, good judgments. Poor character. Yeah, right. As a climber. <laughs> right. But, you know, and he just, you, you you don't do it consciously, but you're like, okay, you're a climber. So, you know, these certain things we're, we're, we're going to line up on, like, no problem. You know, okay, well, let's not talk about politics or whatever else, but... This these two certain things that's going to be good enough to have a relationship with you, and we'll find out the rest later on. Totally. It's good enough to jump off and uh, and right. that's a I mean it's this I've never been through these these traumas that you guys talk about, um, but it's also something that you know is so important to me and gives me strength. And anybody that's come on the show, like without exception, that's they talk about community, they talk about friends, they talk about you know, climbing is not this solo sport. It's the sport that you do or recreation or pursuit that you do with other people. And without the other people, it's nothing. Yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, and it's like a lifelong thing too, right? You can do this forever. And I mean, I think 
it, at the same time, it's it, it can be a really hard tribe to navigate. It can be a hard tribe to find acceptance in because everyone's out kind of focused on maybe their own goals or um, what they're trying to do. And and you've, you've got to match up with people at the right time, right? Like Alex and I wouldn't have done well two weeks in Yosemite. That wouldn't have been a good pairing um, because he's a super hard climber and he wants to do different lines than I do in Yosemite. But out on an adventure climb in Angola, find the right time and space and say, hey, let's go have this adventure. It's like, cool. You know, and I had a really hard day one day and I was had expectations way above what I should be where I should be. And I was really, really frustrated. And Alex is like, dude, why are you so upset? And I was like, well, I'm not climbing. I feel like I should go home and train more. And he's like, you're here, you know, just, just let's go climb. Like, don't, don't ruin this for yourself and everybody else. You're like, you're here, you're here to have fun and hang out and climb. That's why we're here. You know? And, um, that's a great reminder. We were there to climb and have fun. And I think the, you know, the maximum, the off repeated quote, right. The the best climber is the climber who's having the most fun. And that mm-hmm. was a really key turning point, not just on that expedition, but I think also kind of life. Cause you, you look up to people like, you know, I look up to you, like you're, you've got some great climbs under your belt and you're a really hard climber. And I'd love to, you know, climb at that harder level, but I, I just don't have the time. Right. But that doesn't mean, does that make me any less of a climber? No. And I think what ends up happening is, is there are people who kind of get stuck in the middle. And, um, I, I was, I had the great chance. I was hanging out with Corey Richards the other night. Um, who also like Reinhold Messner has amazing hair. And, uh, from a different perspective, his goes straight up. Reinhold's flows down like it a waterfall. Flows it really does. Like a waterfall, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. A so, laughing waterfall. A laughing, a laughing, <laughs> giggling waterfall. Whereas Corey Richards' hair looks like ice lines that Will Gad wouldn't want to climb. So, um, and we were talking about. You seem to have a little hair envy. I do. I have <laughs> so, no hair. You know. I know. It's the lack of hair. <laughs> so, so That's why I have such a big beard now. But um, yeah, I probably, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about hair. Um, I should have been a hairdresser, uh, maybe, maybe my next career, but, and Corey and I were talking about, you know, why do you do the things you do and what do you do the things you do? And, and, and it can never really be about you, right? You've got to do it because you love climbing. You've got to do it because you, and, and, and it's the same thing with like war, war, you know, all quiet on the Western front. Richard, uh, remark talks about this, right. And I, I just slaughtered the author's name, but and I'll quiet on the Western front. And there's that beautiful phrase about you realize you don't go to war for even your country. You go to war for the person who's to the left of you and to the right of you. And, um, there's a lot to unpack out of that statement, mm-hmm. but, um, it's the same thing with climbing and it's the same thing with the military. And it's the same thing with these passions and pursuits that we have that really matter, that, that really highlight life and, and carve away all the bullshit in life. And, um, it, it can never be about you. Like the trip to Angola, yeah, I wanted to go and I want to tell a story about the Angolan people. And But it, if I went, because it, it's hard, right? Because we all have ego and there's ego in these big expeditions and there's ego when we climb and there's ego and all this stuff and ego and sponsorship. But at the end of the day, it has to be about the passion. It has to be about the love, whether you're shooting photos, whether whatever it is you do at work, um, whatever it is you do in your life, it's got to be about the love. And I think with all of our friends, you know, we're going to keep climbing in these mountains and people are going to keep dying in these mountains. And, um, for whatever reason, probably for really poor reasons, our country is going to keep sending people to war and people are going to keep dying in those wars. And there, some people are going to keep coming home and we can do the best we can to make sure that they feel loved, that they feel welcome, that they feel like they have an identity beyond who they used to be that they can be forward thinking that we as veterans can begin to see ourselves as climbers, as hikers, as citizens, as husbands, as fathers, as friends, as tribe members. Um, and I think it's really important too for climbers, right? 
climbers aren't just climbers either. There's a lot of identity there. And cause sometimes if you take away that key identity, people get lost. And that's what happens. I think a lot of times with veterans, but people are still going to die. So what's left and you hope it's love, right? I mean, and it's been a really rough year for a lot of people. And I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of really incredible people. And, um, a lot of those people aren't here right now. And, uh, we can just hope to keep climbing on their shoulders. So let's, um, finish up here. Um, that was amazing, but let's finish up with, uh, talking about, cause it's a really great way to finish after what you just said it, is talk about your outreach to the, the, um, the veteran community in terms of let's talk about nuts and bolts, um, the organization that you're working with to try to bring some other folks over into uh, kind of what you found. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, I work, I'm privileged enough to work for Sierra club outdoors, uh, which is the outdoor wing of the Sierra club, kind of the heart of what John Muir, I think was all about. And uh, it says it in our motto, explore, enjoy and protect the planet. And uh, through our programming and advocacy work, we get out 250,000 people a year, which is pretty awesome to explore and enjoy. And um, we do that in three different ways. We do that through our local chapters. We have about 420 different outings groups connected to the 63 chapters around the country. Uh, we have a program called Inspiring Connections Outdoors, which works with kids and others who may not get outside or have a chance to get outside. And, you know, we have a military outdoors program, which works with military service members, veterans and their families uh, to get outside. Um, the website is just, you know, sierraclub.org backslash outdoors. And you can see all about those programs. We run a lot of different programs for a lot of different types of people all around the country. And uh, we're able to do what we do because of our incredible volunteers and our volunteer engagement. And uh, we think it's the most powerful, you know, for community members to organize in their local community to get people out in the nature that's nearby. Um, you know, I grew up in Brookings, South Dakota and the highest point in my home County is a covered landfill. And that's where I learned to sled. And that's where I learned to climb up high and look out into the world and see the horizon. And, uh, that's just as valid and wonderful a nature experience as it is to go climbing and, you know, in the needles in Northern California or the needles in South Dakota or the Himalaya or, take a walk out here in pioneer park. And that's, that's what we're working on. And we do a lot of advocacy work through partners like outdoor, or excuse me, the outdoor Alliance for kids. It's run by uh, Jackie Osfeld to make sure that we have policy solutions so that people can hopefully only ever live more than five or 10 minutes walk away from, from a great green space. And is that your, uh, is that your living? Yep. That's what I do as a living. It's uh -huh. pretty awesome. Right? Yeah. That does seem, I wake up in the morning and my job is to, find ways to get more people outside. That's awesome. Yeah. It's yeah. Great. yeah. It's like, it's a dream job. And I never in a million years, you know, I don't think at any point in my life when you were like digging, looking for a landmine, yeah, land like, I was never like, yeah, this is what, I mean, <laughs> I remember once I was like, this is, um, I think, I think a lot of climbers probably would, would appreciate this, right? There, there's moments where you're climbing and you look down and you're like, what would happen if I just unclipped? Mm. I mean, that just that sense of freedom for that moment. Right. Or like, and we were all the kids, right, that, uh, you know, maybe we're standing on the edge of something and you just wanted to keep getting closer. I was hot. I was tired. I was sick. I'd been in Angola for about six weeks. I'd, I'd gotten sick like three weeks in. And I looked at my line on the ground, right, and nothing in front of me had been cleared. And I thought, I just need to know if this is worth it. So I took my trowel, which is kind of like a hook trowel. And as hard as I could, I swung it in front of me and nothing happened. 
And it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life next to that first rappel off the flat iron. I was like, all right, that's the dumbest, scariest thing I'll ever do in my life. I can get back to living. Well, thanks a lot for coming in and sitting down. Yeah. That was you. like, uh, I mean, that's what this podcast is all about, man. Cause I'm sitting here just totally moved by what you just told me. And, uh, I really appreciate you coming over and sharing all this stuff with us. And I think the listeners are going to be blown away. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Like the normal cast is kind of the, you know, the normal cast, I think is the voice of our community and the, the climbing zine are the words that we live by. So you're keeping that dirtbag dream alive, man. So thanks a lot. Right on. All right, folks, that was a good one, wasn't it? Stacy Bear opening up, showing us what he's made of. Both him and I choked up a bit during that one, as you could probably hear. Hopefully you did, too. We take this outdoor thing for granted, all the joy it brings us, because we're already in it. But if you know somebody who's having trouble connecting, maybe they live in an urban place where their outdoor seed can find no purchase. Well, put them in touch with Stacy over at the Sierra Club Outdoors. You can go to the Sierra Club website, sierraclub.org. Anyway, Google Sierra Club Outdoors, you'll find it. He does great work over there. Let's share this love of the outdoors. Okay, if you want to help out the Enormacast sharing that love, you can go to enormacast.com, click on the Help Out tab. All sorts of stuff you can do there to help out the podcast. Some of it free. One of it costs money. If you want to donate to the podcast, I appreciate that. Donations have been uh, strong lately, which is wonderful because, you know, diapers aren't cheap. Actually, they are cheap, but we need shitloads of them. Second reference to baby shit on this episode. Yes, this is what's on my mind. Okay, the other thing on my mind is hopefully going climbing soon, getting back in the swing of things. Hopefully you are too, and as you go out there, of course, please, please, please remember to check your knot. Check the folks next to you. Just walk around looking at people's crotches. That's the way to do it. All right. See you next time. Mount Everest. Forbidding, aloof, terrifying. This year, this remote Himalayan mountain, this mystical temple, surrounded by the most difficult terrain in the world, repulsed yet another attempt to conquer it. This time by the International Hairdressers Expedition. <laughs> the leader of the expedition was Colonel Sir John Teasy-Weezy Butler, veteran of K2, Annapurna, and Vidal. His plan was to ignore the usual route round the South Col and to make straight for the top. Well, we established base salon here and climbed quite steadily up to Mario's here. From here, using crampons and cutting ice steps as we went, we moved steadily up the Lotsey face to the North Ridge, establishing Camp 3, where we could get a hot meal, a manicure and a shampoo and set. 